Romance Mythology, an introduction to Dante's Divine Comedy by Gil Bailey, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 2. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Allegory of Love in which he said, uh, he uh, noted that Thomas Aquinas had nothing to say in his great discourse on the human condition about passionate romantic love. C.S. Lewis says he didn't have anything to say on that subject for the same reason that he didn't have anything to say on the subject of steam engines. There are several popular books where one can read about the onset of this particular myth. I'm using myth not in a pejorative sense. Uh, because I will also refer to the Christian myth. But one can study about the onset of this myth, and there are several. C.S. Lewis's book on the allegory of love, although it is a literary study of a medieval literary genre, he digresses for a brief period to talk about the conditions that gave rise to this new way of writing and thinking and feeling. So his book can be consulted. Uh, Denis de Rougemont, a uh, French historian, uh, has carried a lifelong uh, animus uh, with regard to this mythology and has written some important books on it, that probably the central one being Love in the Western World. Uh, at a more popular level, Robert Johnson has written a book called We, which explores in part the onset of this mythology. Joseph Campbell deals with it in uh, his um, creative mythology, and there are others, but those I think are the those are certainly the ones that most that stand out in my mind, and they spread across the spectrum. From I would say on the, what shall we call it, left or right? On the right is Denis de Rougemont, who feels uh, love or the mythology of passionate romantic love is really paganism's revenge against its Christian conqueror, and he notes with alarm the way that mythology is increasingly savaging. Uh, the central institutions of our cultural order, namely marriage and the family. And so he sets out to try to set things straight. On the other end of the spectrum uh, is probably Joe Campbell, who sees it as the birth of a new and independent and audacious kind of vitality in which one begins to consult one's own feeling in orienting one's life and is less slavish to the, to the inherited doctrines. Uh, that tell, tell you what you ought to be feeling. And Robert Johnson and uh, C.S. Lewis are somewhere in between those two. I want to take a slightly different tack this morning, although I embrace all of those opinions. But I'd, I'd like to start with quoting C.S. Lewis and uh, de Rougemont to get a sense of the birth of the new mythology. C.S. Lewis says, It seems to us natural that love should be the commonest theme of serious imaginative literature, but a glance at classical antiquity or at the Dark Ages at once shows us that what we took for, quote, nature is really a special state of affairs, which will probably have an end and which certainly had a beginning in the 11th century Provence in the south of France. De Rougemont comments on this, and you can tell by these words that he has a more aggressive position with regard to it. He says, the whole lot of us lead our lives of civilized people quite without suspecting that those lives are being led amid a strictly insensate confusion of religions never completely dead and seldom altogether understood and practiced, of moral teachings which once upon a time were mutually exclusive but now are superimposed on one another or else combined in the background of our elementary behavior, of unsuspected complexes which because unsuspected are the more active, and of instincts inherited less from some animal nature than from customs entirely forgotten, customs which have turned into mental furrows or scars that are unconscious and on that account easily confused with instinct. Later on in his argument, C.S. Lewis says this, it seems, or it seemed until lately, a natural thing that love under certain conditions should be regarded as a noble and ennobling passion. It is only if we imagine ourselves trying to explain this doctrine to Aristotle, Virgil, St. Paul, or the author of Beowulf that we become aware of how far from natural it is. Real changes in human sentiment are very rare. There are perhaps three or four on record, but I believe that they occur and that this is one of them. 
the French poets in the 11th century discovered or invented or were the first to express that romantic species of passion which English poets were still writing about in the 19th. They effected a change which has left no corner of our ethics, our imagination, our daily life untouched. And they erected impassable barriers between us and the classical past or the oriental present. Whether those impassable barriers are still there between us and the oriental present is another question altogether. Uh, I think there's a good deal of evidence that, that the, uh, the virulence of this myth is proving Kipling wrong, never the twain shall meet. East is east and west is west, and never the twain shall meet. Well, the power of this myth may prove that statement wrong. It may, we may not have an impassable barrier with the Orient much longer. But any, anyway, I want to get to the last sentence in that passage from uh, Lewis. He says, compared with this revolution, the Renaissance is a mere ripple on the surface of literature. I have been reading about and thinking about and emoting about this subject all my life, as have you. <laughs> I was going to say the last uh, 10 days, but it occurred to me that it's a little bit longer than that. Anyway, in the course of the last 10 days, I've been doing it for a living, and I have uh, submerged myself in its confusions and so on, and felt I had to uh, somehow reconcile these, th those who were defending it and those who were attacking it and so on. And I came upon a... a very understated comment in a prominent medieval scholar's writings, a, a man named Henry Osborne Taylor, who, who was a professor of medieval literature at Harvard at the turn of the century and wrote uh, sort of the classical study of the medi medieval mind. And in that, he makes one little comment to the effect that what happened in the 11th century was the emotional consequence of the Christian revolution catching up with its doctrine. He didn't say it quite that way, but he left that distinct impression. And that set me off on another tangent, and I want to explore that a little bit today, not presuming that I have resolved it all, because I have not, and it will become clear that I have not, but I would like to have us look at this mythology in that respect. St. Paul was the first, I think, to recognize the incredible uh, conundrum or paradox of the Christian Revolution. It was a liberation. It was a breaking out of the old form. And nobody celebrated this liberation more than St. Paul did. But then in the course of these great celebrations of this liberation, he catches himself and realizes the possible consequences of that liberation. That it could so quickly turn into licentiousness, which it did, in fact. Some of the early Christian communities were so infused with, with this Christian revolution that they had a wild time of it. And Paul recognizes this, and you can see it in his writings. The gospel was, as Paul said, dynamite. He used the Greek word dunamis, from which we get dynamite. It is dynamite, it will shatter all the old structures and create new loyalties. We could add slightly to that that it's proved to be a time bomb. Uh, it's dynamite that doesn't go off every minute. It doesn't go off every decade. It doesn't go off every generation. Uh, one hopes in an internal psychological way one can get it to go off a few times in one's life. But in the cultural order, it doesn't sometimes go off for a while. Some people have said it goes off every 500 years that the last time it went off was with Martin Luther and the Reformation, and it's due for another go. Some people who are studying biblical studies say it's, it's, it's happening. But it doesn't go off all the time. It bides its time and goes off occasionally. One of the things that Christianity did is that it treated very cavalierly the existing structures, the existing social orders, with regard to the ultimate truth. Something else was breaking in. So they became secondary. And another thing it did is it began to, to encourage its adherents to be introspective, to consult their own inner life. The first, I think you, we could say, the first genuine autobiography is that of Augustine. And it has been noted 
that, and it is Augustine's the story of his earlier life in which he was un, lived a, what he came to regard as an unredeemed existence, and his gradual conversion and the deepening of his spirituality and so on. It's been noted that that autobiography could not have been written were it not for the sacrament of penance, which encouraged him throughout his life to reflect on his own inner existence. The name of the autobiography is The Confessions. So Christianity, in even specifically with regard to one of its major sacraments, encourages a kind of introspection that one must consult one's own inner emotive life to find out what is going on. A Christian psychological revolution was slowly underway, and the Christian doctrine on the surface of things was conquering all the existing competing, or virtually all of the existing competing mythologies. After the conversion of Constantine, it had, the, it had state aid in this project, but still in all, it won out over these existing mythologies. These existing mythologies had been had been uh, adequately channeling and organizing human psychological experience for time out of mind. And suddenly, they were defunct. And what they were replaced by had not yet fully developed all of the psychological and emotional and spiritual nuance that these ancient mythologies had developed over such long periods of time. The Christian mythology provided a larger cosmos and turned the interest of its adherents back to an introspective position. One could say that in the 11th century, the time bomb went off, and the product of the introspections, which had up to then been the work of the mystics and the contemplative, most of whom, by the way, expressed their deepest experiences in terms of erotic imagery, the product of the introspective work was now picked up by the poets, who very quickly turned it into song, from whom it was then picked up by the average person who turned it into a great elaborate fantasy world and a new mythology is born. If we return to that explosion metaphor, those who were charged with uh, removing the shrapnel and bandaging the walking wounded can be forgiven for not noticing uh, how much Christian doctrine was involved in the original explosion. It wasn't immediately apparent. But the work of a transformative life, which is, say, a religious life, is, to put it in its absolutely ridiculously simple-minded way, is twofold. One is to awaken the energy to arouse the libido, the energies of, of existence. And the second is to convert them or to redeem them or to transform them. And there is an incredible tension between these two requirements. In the ancient world, they were personified by the god Dionysus and the god Apollo. Dionysus was the awakener of this libido, and Apollo was uh, the personification of the urge to organize it and turn it into consciousness and culture. And both of these are required. If either one of them is missing, then the business of culture at the external level and the business of, of spirituality in, at the personal realm goes off track somewhere. But there's an enormous tension between them and the way to avoid tension is always to choose sides. So there were those who would awaken the libido without bothering to drive it Godward and just let it go wherever it wanted. And there were those who meticulously would confine the libido to expressions that were religiously and morally correct without bothering to awaken enough of it to threaten the contemporary social order or the psychological status quo. And in the 11th century, this conflict became the central atmospheric event of the time. On one hand, you had the clerics and the church, and on the other hand, you had the troubadours and the poets and the celebrants and the bards. The latter were awakening this new energy, and the former were scrambling like crazy to suppress it out of the suspicion that the, uh, that the quantity of energy being awakened was more than they were capable of channeling. So a great cultural contest is going on. 
the conflict, the conflict, as I said last week, that Joseph Campbell refers to as the incommensurability of libido and credo, one could say that in the 11th century, there was a cultural discovery underway, though it was latent and unconscious, and what they were discovering, latently and unconsciously, was what Jung discovered, namely this. This is a quote from Jung. The psyche is at odds with itself. And this was a cultural discovery. A discovery, by the way, which I think, when it is fully recognized, leads symbolically to something like the cross. The psyche is at odds with itself. Well, the troubadours, who were part of this discovery, uh, were not particularly discreet about it. The mystics were fairly discreet about it. The troubadours were not particularly dis discreet about it. And as they began to sing it, one senses that they surprised themselves about, with what they had discovered. A contemporary bard, Richard Wilbur, writes these lines. It is by words and the defeat of words, down sudden vistas of the vain attempt, that for a flying moment one may see by what cross-purposes the world is dreamt. Well, I wanted to, at the risk of indulging in reading one of my own poems, I'd like to do that. It's a poem called Coming of Age, and uh, since I have this solid scholar, Henry Osborne Taylor, at least alluding to the possibility that, that, that the 11th century in the south of France was the, was the emotional coming of age of a Christian impulse. It has to do with a conflict which begins to be felt as one is coming of age, or culturally as one is, as a culture is coming of age in some way. As some new energy is being released into the status quo, and one is forced to try to grapple with it. In this case, the energy is felt to be both sexual and spiritual, a combination which is very awkward. I have to say this because it pops in my mind. Charles Williams has this thing where he says, we must play and we must pray, but we must not try to do them both at the same time because we humans are not yet capable of such simultaneities. Likewise with sexuality and spirituality. Unfortunately, here comes an experience which is dripping with both of them. And we know it, somehow we know it, or at least we used to know it, back when there were a few more taboos in place. Taboos are very healthy. Without them, passionate romance is simply uh, an untenable experience. N you need the taboos. This is a poem that's put back at a time when taboos are still strongly in place. So here it is, called The Coming of Age. Mm -hmm. And I read it as a metaphor for, for what happened in the 11th century. Today I'm a Midwestern town, a day in a summer of the Roosevelt term, 4,300 and growing in bounds, but I'd leave if I could and I'd wander. It's warmer than sin on the porch, and the dry dirt's hot as the sun. I'm a wind due in from the north to lift the scorching and skirts. I'm a drugstore fountain and an overhead fan. I'm a marble-topped table with black iron legs and a leftover soda sucked to the dregs. I'm a kid with a nickel and a cold cherry Coke. I'm a magazine rack by the door. I'm an afternoon breeze, lifting her skirt at the knees. I'm a giggle at an old dirty joke. I'm a first summer job wiping off tables. It's easy and breezy and big. I'm a boy with no sisters. I'm fantasies, fears, and brassiers. I'm a glance at her knees. I'm the breeze again, please. I'm holier now, but I'm fumbling, pretending not to see what I saw, wiping marble-top altars and crumbling like Jesus the love-me-not straws. I'm an old druggist who knows what he sees. Soon I'll be shaving and acting like men, but now I'm the wind from the door and the preacher who thinks it a sin, thinks one out of three ladies a whore. I'm the fear and the knees and the kneelings. I'm the get-up-to-leave revealings. And then... I'm the old druggist who's coughing in code, hacking and hinting his sluggish opinion, enforcing the rules with his health, till I'm hemmed in again by a cherry coke town, lost for a time in the breeze of a storm that's howling toward town from the north to lift the scorching and skirts, teasing the limits while wetting the roots 
and rolling its thunder around, rattling the door to the world, with nothing to do but stand by the rack and straighten the magazine shelf, glancing at a picture or two. My uncle, who left, felt surrounded, but Dad, the teetotaler, found Christ. Well, I don't know if it'll immediately become apparent why I read that poem, but something like that, it seems to me, happened in the 11th century in the south of France. And a comparable confusion and tension set in at the level of the cultural order. Those who were incapable of experiencing the conflict inside themselves chose sides and lived it out as a sociodrama. So that there were those who were suspicious of the arousal and those who were likewise suspicious of the conversion that it made possible. Typically, the bards and poets didn't want to hear about the seven-story mountain or any of the rest of it. And the clerics didn't want to deal with that level of emotional energy. Last week, we used this passage from Rethke where he says, Am I a servant of a sovereign wish or a ladle rattling in an empty dish? As the central question uh, for our first pass at this uh, romantic love thing. And this week, I'd like to use this question of roomies. It's not a rhetorical question. It's a legitimate question, by the way. Two questions. The first is, if you don't have a woman that lives with you, why aren't you looking? If you have one, why aren't you satisfied? Now, if he had posed this question to the medieval mind, he could have posed it because it was so bifurcated between the clerics and the poets. I'm, I'm using that clerics and poets as a way of kind of artificially creating what was much more confused than that. He could have said to the clerics, if you don't have a woman that lives with you, why aren't you looking? Are you afraid of that energy? And he could have said to the poets, if you have one, why aren't you satisfied? That's not a moral statement, by the way. He's not telling them to go be satisfied. He's announcing that they will never be satisfied. That is where the energy is awakened, but it must then be transformed. If you don't have a woman that lives with you, why aren't you looking? If you have one, why aren't you satisfied? Well, one of the discoveries of the 11th century was, again, something that a modern poet, this time Yeats, put into a brief phrase. Yeats simply asked what seems to be an innocent enough question until the implications of it come home. He says, does the imagination dwell the most upon a woman won or a woman lost? Well, the poets of the 11th century understood the answer to that question very well and began to make great poetry out of it. Every myth that continues to touch us deeply is a myth that puts us, puts us in touch in one way or another with a larger reality than the one we habitually inhabit. And that's why we return to it, because we want to, we want to have that window on a, on a larger universe. We want to be reminded of that larger dimension of things. And this myth did just that, and does just that. So what I'd like to do is, is read a, a couple of poems from uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay. So much of her poetic career is given to this question of love and her life and romance and so on. Well, here it is. We were very tired and we were very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. It was bare and bright and smelled like a stable. But we looked into a fire. We leaned across a table. We lay on a hilltop underneath the moon. And the whistles kept blowing and the dawn came soon. We were very tired. We were very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. You ate an apple, and I ate a pear from a dozen of each we had bought somewhere. And the sky went wan, and the wind came cold, and the sun came dripping a bucket full of gold. We were very tired, and we were very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. We hailed, Good morrow, mother, to a shawl-covered head, and bought a morning paper which neither of us read. And she wept, God bless you for the apples and pears. And we gave her all our money but our subway fare. Now, we've had that experience. 
and no wonder anybody who has it wants to have it again. I would suggest that you could do a lot worse than that in trying to define what it was Jesus meant by the kingdom. That what she describes in that poem is something very close to the ultimate Christian lifestyle. That is to say, it is generous, it is joyful, it is grateful, it is forgiving, it is graceful. So in the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus says, the, king, the kingdom is spread out over the face of the world and men do not see it. Well, maybe in this, sometimes in this state, we see it. The problem is, then what? Well, the same poet who writes that, a few years later in her life, writes this sonnet. Oh, think not I am faithful to a vow. Faithless am I, save to love self alone. Were you not lovely, I would leave you now. After the feet of beauty fly my own. Were you not still my hunger's rarest food and water ever to my wildest thirst, I would desert you. Think not, but I would. And seek another as I sought you first. But you are mobile as the veering air, and all your charms are more changeful than the tide. Wherefore, to be inconstant is no care. I have but to continue at your side. So wanton, light, and false, my love, are you. I am most faithless when I am most true. Well, therein was the dilemma. That audacity, that credible time when they were tired and weary and back and forth all night on the ferry, exists because it is somehow outside of conventional life. And if it then becomes conventional life, it loses the quality it has as being outside of it. So what the poets began to search for is this someplace in the middle between the arousal and the transformation, let's say, somewhere in the middle where that intense consciousness, as I said last week, consciousness cannot be distinguished from the word love, that intense consciousness-love can be felt somewhere in between the awful and the lawful, some kind of zone in there. Tennyson writes about Lancelot, the first uh, adulterer in the, in the bard stories, and he says, His honor rooted in dishonor stood, and faith unfaithful kept him falsely true. Now, anytime you have to indulge in that kind of oxymoron or conundrum, you know you're touching on a paradox. His honor rooted in dishonor stood, and faith unfaithful kept him falsely true. He was dishonorable and somehow remained honorable. He was unfaithful and somehow remained faithful. That is the goal of the troubadours. That's the goal of the troubadours, to find that play. So imagine tensions between the strategies for awakening this libido or this energy and strategies for converting it. There's no alternative, living, viable alternative to suffering that tension. As I said, we tend to take sides and therefore not have to suffer it. Then it becomes sociodrama instead of psychodrama. But if it is going to involve a genuine transformation of us individually, we have to just suffer through it. I, I use this just because it came to me this morning, this little alliteration on awfulness and lawfulness. Here's the experience. And the awfulness of it in the positive sense of the word awfulness, the wonder of it, the awe of it, if we refuse to bring that into contact with the lawfulness of it or the, or the living it out in some daily way and in some, the course of life, then it evaporates. And if we stick to the laws and stay away from the awe, then nothing comes of that. Yeats has a passage where he talks about the former condition. He says, I know although when looks meet I tremble to the bone, the more I leave the door unlatched, the sooner love is gone. It says something about the dynamic here. I know, although when looks meet I tremble to the bone, the more I leave the door unlatched, the sooner love is gone. So what I want to set up is the, is the requirement that, that this tension between this enormous raw energy and the potential for transforming it into consciousness slash love is something that simply must be experienced. 
suffered through, rather than joining the barricades with the bards who want to let her rip and the clerics who want to keep things tidy. And uh, those two impulses are simply the Christian version of Dionysus and Apollo. To choose one or, one or the other is equally lifeless. Well, I want to use Buber here again. He speaks of uh, an indissoluble antinomy. This He speaks of this in another context, but I want to use it because his language is so apropos, and I've, I've quoted this passage probably as much as any passage I've ever read, because it's so important for the transformation of tension into consciousness. He who tries to think out a synthesis destroys the significance of the situation. He who strives to make the antinomy into a relative matter abolishes the significance of the situation. He who wishes to carry through the conflict of the antinomy other than with his life transgresses the significance of the situation. The significance of the situation is that it is lived, and nothing but lived, continually, ever anew, without foresight, without forethought, without prescription, in the totality of its antinomy. And that, of course, is what's called for how to have both that churning energy and the channeling of it. Richard Wilbur uses a, an interesting, I think, metaphor for that. One, it reminds one of some of the things you, you read in some of the mystical writings almost. His metaphor for it is a fountain, a fountain which is constantly bubbling and gurgling and moving. But because it is a fountain, it has a quality of stateliness to it as well. It has a form. And he looks on this fountain in one of his poems and muses about how it somehow catches both of these qualities of life without relinquishing one or the other. And he ends the poem by a reference to the dreamt land toward which all hungers leap, all pleasures pass the dreamt land towards which all hungers leap, all pleasures pass. And he notices how the water falls on the pavement below the fountain, indicating a kind of constant process that one is involved with if neither the energy nor the conversion of it is surrendered. The poet Rumi again, you sit here for days saying, this is strange business. You are the strange business. You have the energy of the sun in you, but you keep nodding it up at the base of your spine. You're some weird kind of gold that wants to stay melted in the furnace so you won't have to be coins. Now that, I think, would be well directed to those who would celebrate that raw, instinctive, libidinal passion without taking responsibility for its transformation. You have the energy of the sun in you, but you keep nodding it up at the base of your spine. You're some weird kind of gold that wants to stay melted in the furnace so you won't have to be coins. On the other side, you have people, Rumi doesn't, have, doesn't speak to them in this poem, but on the other side, you have those who are happy to try to get by on a few thin coppers so that they don't have to get anywhere near the furnace. <laughs> And neither one of them can get hold of life that way. Well, this new mythology is called courtship. And the reason we call it courting and courtship is because it started in the courts, in, at, uh, around the castles, where kings and nobles and lords and ladies held court. And it was in the peculiar anomaly called passionate romance came into being perhaps the way some of the marsupials came into being and very strange confluence of circumstances, all converging at one time and place, first gave rise to this, and then the stories about it spread and became totally compelling, and are so to this day. So I want to talk about the conditions. First of all, the social conditions. The castle was a little enclave of what we would, in the very roughest sense, call civilized life in a world of a very rough-hewn peasantry lying around. And in the court, or the castle, there was uh, the lord of, the, of that realm, his lady, a small entourage of his lady's maidens, a few scattered damsels, 
and a huge crowd of men. Uh, these men were noble in the sense that they were knights and squires and so on and so forth, uh, but they vastly outnumbered the women in the court, and they regarded themselves as socially distinguished from the peasantry, wherein the law of averages ran pretty much its course in terms of the number of men and women, uh, but inside the court it was otherwise. So what happens in this situation, as we try to read back into the record, what happens is that the noble knights, squires and so forth, living in that kind of social greenhouse, begin to regard particularly the lady of the court and her damsels, the train of her fellow women, with great idealization. They have sworn their loyalty to the Lord and the court, and that includes the lady of the court. So they are legally subservient to and bound to and sworn allegiance to this lady by virtue of her marriage to the Lord. And in addition to that legal obligation, there arises the psychological, the mystery of this woman. Now, other things are happening at a psychological level. Remember, this is the time when suddenly, like as though they were sprouting from bulbs that had weathered some long, long winter, suddenly there were cathedrals that sprang up out of nowhere all over Europe dedicated to the Virgin. So we're in a larger psychological environment in which the feminine is awakening. In the court, this takes the form of these sort of rough-and-ready knights and squires beginning to see this, uh, this apparition of the feminine and idealize her. On the other hand, every marriage was affected because of political and economic exigencies. There were no marriages that were the result of any love relationship. That's a part of the myth that happens much later in time. <coughs> marriages were simply routine uh, alliances. And so, while the knights of the court regarded this lady with something approaching religious awe, her husband regarded her as a piece of chattel. The marriage relationship was the dark and gloomy backdrop to the kind of affection that the knights had. Marriage was routine and a lifeless convention that had none of the emotional connotations that later ages were to attach to it. It had all the charm and appeal of the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit, compared with which the affection of the knights for the lady was something real. C.S. Lewis says, any idealization of sexual love in a society where marriage is purely utilitarian must begin by being an idealization of adultery. You may not have noticed, but the key ingredient of the Romantic mythology is adultery. Now, that's what set the Rougemont so at odds with it. He wanted to make sure the world well understood that this myth implied an adulterous rendezvous. The medieval church regarded passionate love as evil per se, regardless of whether it was experienced between a husband and wife or otherwise. Peter Lombard declared that passionate love for a man's own wife is adultery. So, there was no choice between a legitimate and a sinful passionate love. The choice was between passionate love and rectitude. If you will uh, put yourself in that position, you will see what some of the dynamics were. Those who challenged the moral arbiters in this case were the poets. The poets have not been notoriously reticent about uh, amorous matters. So there was a kind of a cultural shootout between the poets and the clerics. The poets trying to awaken this new discovery via the myth, via the stories, via the poems, via the songs, and the clerics trying to put a lid on it. As we said before, both have to happen. That is to say, not to put a lid on it, but there, there has to be an awakening and then a transformation. Well, I want to go for a few minutes and try to do this as quickly as I can, partly because we don't have much time, partly because I want to cover my own immense ignorance of this subject by going over it quickly. The most ancient roots of this go back to tantric yoga.
the tantric movement in Hindu and Buddhist India began in the fourth century. It came via Persia uh, much later into Europe, in case you think that Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan are the only people to inherit headaches from uh, what is now modern-day Iran. A lot of this stuff came to us via Persia. It was really the boomerang because a lot of it began in the Occident and meandered uh, east and then came back. But in any case, not tantric yoga out of whole cloth, but the, some of the implications of it seep back into Europe. Tantric movement itself sprang suddenly, as if from nowhere, though it has roots in some of the earliest Upanishads. It is based on the seven chakras and the kundalini, the idea is that of its own initiative or by being provoked into a stirring, the kundalini serpent that sleeps at the base of the spine begins to be aroused. And the aim of the process is to encourage this arousal and at the same time to direct the energy and the direction of the serpent in usually a spiral fashion up the axial system of the spine, finally to reach the thousand-petal lotus at the top of the at the top of the head, so that a pure channel exists between the divine and the human. Begins at the base of the spine, first stop on the journey is the genitals. The tantric system, which is much more involved than this, but one of the elements of the tantric system, was a kind of uh, psychophysiological technique, which was the full arousal of sexuality and the preventing of the consummation of sexual act. And the real athletes in this regard would uh, perform some, some feats that would astound us all. The point being that what was discovered was that you could literally overwhelm the psyche with libido if you awakened it and frustrated its expression at the biological level. In the 11th century, there was a heresy came to be regarded as a heresy. It was really the second wave of a, a heresy that began in the third century called the Catharist heresy, named for the Catharist church or the Cathars. Cathar means the purified ones. The original heresy was, was the Manichaean heresy, the third century, taken from the man named Mani. The uh, Manichaean heresy, is a, as the Catharist one was, a strict dualistic heresy. It says the material world is evil, and only the spiritual world uh, beckons us. We are souls trapped in bodies, and we must liberate ourselves from that imprisonment. Uh, the Cathars inherited that elemental theology. It moved into Europe via Asia Minor through Bulgaria, and then from Bulgaria into the south of France via trade routes. Now, it's very interesting, I thought as I was thinking about this, it's very curious and humorous to, re to, to think of all of these profound sentiments that we get out of the top 40 records coming via Bulgaria uh, through trade routes to the south of France. I mean, you don't think of it coming through trade routes, do you? Well, that's how we got it. Anyway, it arrived in a little town in France called Albi, where the Catharist set up shop often having to disguise themselves because, as you remember, the medieval church was not particularly uh, tolerant of things that got so out of hand as to be labeled heresy. So sometimes openly, but more often more discreetly, set up shop in a town called Albi. They were found out, and it became known as the Albigensian heresy. And the church uh, dealt with it in its uh, time-honored fashion of smashing it ruthlessly so that most of what we have as with some of the other heresies, most of what we have left of it are some of the diatribes written by the church censors uh, because most of its original uh, documents are destroyed. But in any case, they regarded the body as, as part of the material world and therefore evil. By the way, the dualism of this went right to the core of things. The, the, world was not cre the, the material world was not created by God but by an evil demiurge. And God was only the, in the spiritual realm so that everything in the material realm was condemned. Tra the souls trapped in bodies. Now, if souls are trapped in bodies, then the, the worst thing you can do is to compound the problem by procreation. So, the Cathars uh, found the procreative act, the act of conjugal love, anathema. There were two orders of Catharists 
the pure ones, the strict Cathars, they, they had only one a sacrament, consolamentum, and when they received the sacrament, the pure Cathars shunned any physical contact with their spouses, if, if they happened to have already been married. They shunned the marriage, too, by the way. If they were already married, when they took this uh, sacrament, they shunned any physical contact with their spouses. And they were strict ascetics. By the way, in contrast to the Christian or the Roman Catholic clerics of the time, the, the average cleric at the time was not well known for his incorruptibility, whereas the Cathars were. So they had a certain, in the moral realm, they had a certain, they had a certain prestige for this strict asceticism. Meanwhile, the other element in the Catharist Church were the mere believers. They were not yet brought into the full pure state, and they had not received the sacrament, and so they continued to have sexual relations in marriage, but the sexual relation was regarded simply as a concession to their weakness. While they were continuing to have conjugal intercourse, they regarded it as despicable and slowly began to treat it as despicable and what develops is a very strange thing, which is not all that unique in human history, given human psychology, and that is the pure Cathars were strict ascetics, wouldn't have anything to do with the body. Meanwhile, the mere believers were kind of raunchy. They already regarded it as a degraded act, and so they simply went with the flow. And pretty soon you have a kind of outrageous licentiousness going on side by side with this asceticism. By the way, something not unlike that happened in some of the early Christian communities. I'll read you I, I, two lines from uh, Richard Wilbur, which will, I hope, uh, give a sense of what, what the Catharist believers might have felt as they were indulging their sexual uh, d desires. Wilbur says, we milk the cow of the world, and as we do, we whisper in her ear, you are not true. It gave rise to some very strange social scenes. And then there are the poets, the troubadours. There's an interesting possibility that some of these troubadours might have been Catharists. Now, they sing these songs and tell these tales which don't seem to be particularly Catharist. Except when you look closer, you realize that in these stories, the lovers never touch in some of the original stories. Tristan and Isolde, the lovers do touch, but under certain under different circumstances. In the original stories, the lovers never touch. Their eyes meet, but they never touch. Some believe that they have found in the, some of the original troubadours' poetry phrases out of Catharist liturgies. They can't be too sure because the Catharist liturgies have been destroyed, largely. The troubadours were forever asking the question, can a married knight be true to his lady? And this was also a question that the Cathars ask as a way of disguising their theological question. That is, can I pledge my allegiance to Rome and still have my allegiance to the true lady of my heart, namely the Catharist Church? That was a disguised question that the Catharists used to ask themselves about their theological loyalty, and the troubadours use it in their stories of romantic passion. As I said, in the original Troubadours' songs, no contact was permitted between the lover and the beloved. Later, in the, some of the uh, more elaborate myths, where we get Lancelot and Guinevere and Tristan and Isolde, physical contact, sexual contact is indulged in, of course, but it is never legitimately consummated in marriage. And the preventing it from being legitimately consummated in marriage kept it at the level of intrigue at the level of suspense. It prevented it from being daily. Romantic mythology employs several strategies to avoid dailiness because that heightened experience cannot survive dailiness. Morning breakfast, toasts, diapers, all the rest of it. The strategy is to avoid that. From the south of France, this strange creature called passionate romance migrated eventually everywhere. It migrated into the north of France where the poet Chrétien wrote the story of Lancelot, the adulterous affair with, the, with Guinevere, the wife of Arthur. It migrated south into Italy where Dante wrote the Divine Comedy. 
based on his experience of love for Beatrice. I want to refer very briefly in the last few minutes to Eloise and Abelard. Eloise and Abelard really predate the first rendition of, let's say, the Tristan and Isolde myth. I think that's very interesting because it is likely that the Tristan and Isolde myth took some of its impulse from the notorious actual events of the life of Eloise and Abelard. Eloise and Abelard, in a way, stumbled upon something. There used to be a bumper sticker that said, uh, Custard died for our sins. Eloise and Abelard died for our sins uh, in some ways. They stumbled into this thing. And in its barest outlines, here is the story. This is a time of enormous creativity. This is a time, within 150 years, this is the time where you have Aquinas and St. Francis and Dante and Eloise and Abelard and Eckhart, the whole thing. It was an enormously creative time. But in any case, Abelard was a brilliant scholar. At the age of 36, when he was already quite famous, he comes to Paris and he sees the niece of the canon at Notre Dame and he falls into lust with her. That is to say, I don't want to doctor it up because in his rendition of it, he does not doctor it up. He simply looks at her and lusts for her. He arranges through some friends to be invited to the canon's home. Fulbert is the man's name. He also arranges through these same friends to have the canon invite Abelard to become the tutor of his niece, Eloise. His niece is quite young. She's in her late teens. And that, of course, is just what Abelard wanted. He becomes her tutor. This, by the way, has some striking parallels to Tristan and Isolde because Tristan becomes the, the guardian of Isolde for King Mark. The tutoring immediately took on amorous subject matter, more so than intellectual ones. And they had a passionate romance. Eloise became pregnant, great scandal. She goes off to have her child. She comes back. Abelard implores her to marry him. She refuses in the first instance because she says it will destroy his career. And it's an absolutely genuine sentiment on her part. She regarded him as larger than life and far more important than herself. I have come to have exactly the opposite regard for them, although I regard them both positively. I think it, over time it came to be shown that Eloise had the, at least the, the struggle with the kind of stuff we're talking about here this morning in more than Abelard did. They finally were married secretly in Paris. Abelard then took Eloise from her home uh, with the with the canon at Notre Dame. He then sent, this is Fulbert, her uncle, then sent his henchmen into Abelard's home in the middle of the night, and they unsexed him. By the way, Abelard and Eloise were already becoming famous. It was not long before they were famous all over Europe. This story was on the lips of everybody. Their love affair, the illicitness of their love affair, the fact that he had been castrated, Abelard then goes into a monastery and he bids, I, I say bids, that's a nice way of putting it, he orders Eloise into the convent. So they return to the, having had this brief amour, now they return to Roma and try to put the toothpaste back in the tube. And what we have of this is Abelard's autobiography, which is called A History of My Calamity, and the letters between them. The letters from Eloise to Abelard are the ones to read. Henry Osborne Taylor, talking about Eloise, spoke of a passion as deeply felt as it was deeply thought upon. And so you get in these letters of Eloise this tremendous grappling with what had happened to them. And her loyalty to it, in spite of the fact that loyalty to it caused some very serious theological problems. Abelard, meanwhile, couldn't deny a certain loyalty to it, but he was managing to fit it back into the orthodox rendition of things. I was going to read some long passages from uh, Eloise's letters, and I think I will not do that except to say she chided him for not writing, 
she became the abbot of her order. He became the abbot of his, although he was such a wily sort of guy, he kept having trouble and had to move around a little bit. But she was the abbess of her order, and she says, you may think, and all these sweet nuns may think, and all of Europe who's come to know about us because of all the songs that have been sung about us may think that I'm sitting here in this convent being a nice little nun. But I want to tell you what's going on inside my mind, my heart. She says, you can't turn the heart off. You can't just baptize it and have it be some other way. And Abelard, I'm imagining now, Abelard would get these letters he would write back and he would say, I understand, I understand, uh, but you must remember now, we're trying to serve God. And she would write back and say, I'm sitting here. I, I have to give you some of the language, if I can. God knows that I've always feared to offend thee more than I have feared to offend him and have desired to please thee more than him. And she says at one place, it really gets kind of, you know, you begin to suspect when you read some of these letters, ah, this is not nice. But, you know, you, be, you, you begin to wonder whether or not what's lacking in Abelard's letters is not a little testosterone or something. I, and that's exactly what Eloise began to ask. <laughs> she says, I, I can't, you know, give in quite as well as you can. She says, such thanksgiving, dearest, may be thine, by one bodily ill cured of many tortures of the soul. And God may have been merciful where he seemed against you, like a good physician who does not spare the pain needed to save a life. But I am tortured with passion and the fires of memory. They call me chaste, but do not know me for a hypocrite. They look upon purity the flesh is virtue, which is of the soul, not of the body. Having some praise from men, I merit none from God who knows the heart. Now, her struggle was the struggle that was going to become everybody's, really, finally. What I want to conclude with is th these lines. He wrote and said, now, tut, tut, why don't you start talking a little more theologically sound? <clears throat> that you may have no further reason to call me disobedient, your command shall bridle the words of unrestrained grief. In writing, I will moderate my language, which I might be unable to do in speech. Nothing is less in our power than our heart, which compels us to obey more than it obeys us. When our affections goad us, we cannot keep the sudden impulse from breaking out into words. So I will withhold my hand from writing whenever I am unable to control my words. Would that the sorrowing heart were as ready to obey as the hand that writes. So she said, I just will not write. Dante, in the 24th canto of the Purgatorio, meets some poet friends of his, and they ask him a couple of questions, and he says this, I am one who, when love breathes in me, takes note. What he, love, within, dictates, I in that way without, would speak and shape. What he's saying is, love speaks to me, and what he speaks to me, I write. What Eloise said to Abelard is, what he speaks to me, I sit on, because Avalard told her to. In order to leave this thing properly hanging at the end of today's session, I would suggest, for a little teaser, that if Fulbert's men had killed Abelard instead of castrating him, and if the social conditions had not been so inhospitable to feminine creativity, Eloise would have written the Divine Comedy. All the ingredients were there, except for the fact that Abelard lived. The thing about the death of Beatrice is that it cut off any possibility and left it all quite literally in Dante's lap. But a hundred years before that, or 150 years before that, Eloise is having the same experience, struggling to reconcile these two great loyalties. Now, it would be so nice if we could say, well, that was all back then, and now here's the answer. The answer is Christianity's now defunct, and we can let her rip. That would be more or less Joseph Campbell's answer. Now, that's not quite fair. But, or, or the answer is that this myth is undeniably wedded to an undeniable heresy, and we must, we must disabuse ourselves of it as quickly as we can and get back to the Christian truth. I think either choice is, is um, 
as as Buber says, it is a, it's avoiding the true significance of the situation. Nobody ever said that an incarnational religion is going to be easy going. 